All right, listen, let's find our sermon outline and open our Bibles. Do you have your Three Crosses app loaded into your phone? I hope you do. If you do, you can find the outline there, or you can grab one on your way in every Sunday. That's fine, too. Let's find our way to Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Today we come to the third of three parables that Jesus is telling as an indictment, as a rebuke to the religious leaders of Jesus' day who did not believe Him, did not trust Him, that He was the Messiah, that He was the coming King. And the parable we're going to look at today focuses on a wedding banquet. Now, if you've ever participated in preparing for a wedding and you felt like it didn't go quite the way you wanted it to go, let me guarantee you that you're going to feel a lot better after reading this scenario today because there's a lot that goes wrong. This is Matthew 22. And the interesting thing about weddings in ancient Israel, uh, they offer to us some insights that make this story in some ways hard to believe um, and, and amazing at the same time. And so you're going to just lean in this morning. There's some beautiful truth in this story, and we're going to unpack it as we, as we do. Let's read through the text, verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many will be in, are invited, but few are chosen. Okay. Now you get what I said, if you've ever planned a wedding that didn't go so well, here you go. There's a lot to think about here. I hope you're hungry because there's a lot to chew on this morning in the text we're about to look at. And when you read this, the twists and turns of this story make some of us a little uncomfortable about the way God uh, deals with people, the way God deals with His servants, the way God deals with those who are in the story of the parable, and all of this that we know this is a comparison story, just like the parable of the two sons, God was the father there. The parable of the problem tenants, God was the landowner. Well, here, God is represented by this king who sends out invitations to a bunch of folks that decide not to come. And this is what the overarching message of the parable is. God has invited us into this banquet, but there are some that come and some that don't, and the reasons we will pull apart here as we look at this this morning. Here's what I want to do. I want to basically walk you through a few things about God. It's not an exhaustive list, but some things that this story will tell us, inform us about God. And I want you to hold on to these things because they're powerful. Just a few things. Then we're going to take a little moment and we're going to talk about 
a few things that God, how God deals with his people Israel. God's people Israel. Are, is he finished with them? What is this about? How is this a comparison of the way God looks at Israel? And then we're going to wrap it up with looking at a few things about God's gift of salvation. And the beautiful thing about that little part is it's going to lead us right into a time of breaking bread, the communion supper with the Lord this morning. So this is going to go quick. If you're taking notes, I hope you will. The first thing this parable reveals is a few things about God. And, and what, what we find first about, about this God that is revealed as the king in this passage is that God is gracious. Would you say that with me? God is gracious. And verse 3 reminds us that there's this king who's throwing a banquet for his son, a wedding banquet, and there are those who have been invited. And Jesus is picking up in the point where everyone knew what he was talking about. There would be the contract season of the wedding. There would be the, the consummation of the wedding. And then the celebration comes after that. In Jewish times and in ancient times, this is the way it rolled. And weddings in these days were, were not weddings like we have today. Uh, they were something that took a long time to prepare, and, and they didn't last just an afternoon or an evening. They lasted for days. Can you imagine a wedding ceremony and, and celebration that lasted for days? Well, that's what was true of, of ancient Israel. In fact, seven days it would be a, a, a mighty grand celebration. And so here's this king who's throwing a wedding banquet and it's going to be amazing. And, and can you be in, imagine being invited to a wedding banquet? As Jesus is telling the story, you can just imagine what people were thinking. The king is throwing a wedding banquet for his son. But the irony, here's where this little twist comes into the story. He goes out and he tells him it's time to come, and nobody wants to come. Now, we've all received wedding invitations in the mail where we said, oh, you know, there's a conflict in my schedule. But you see, back then, there wasn't so much a wedding on such and such a day. The, the person inviting you to the wedding would say, there's a wedding coming in my family. It's going to be in the fall or it's going to be in the spring. And so you would get ready as the party got ready, as the wedding party got ready to do uh, the, the whole wedding. And then the groom would show up. We'll see this later on in Matthew with the parable of the ten virgins who are waiting with the bride for the groom to come because he comes as a surprise. And he comes and he says, it's day, today's the day. And he takes his wife and he takes him down. He takes her down to the father's house. And there the, the, the consummation takes place. The celebration is unfolding. And this amazing experience. And so the invitations would have gone out. Today's the day. This is time to come. And nobody wanted to come. It's amazing. When Jesus said this, I'm sure people were saying, what? Are you kidding? A royal wedding and nobody wants to be there? All I want to show you here is that this is a picture of the way Israel treated King Jesus, who came as Messiah of his people, and already primed and waiting for the time of Messiah's coming. And when the day arrived, the whole of Israel refused. This is what Jesus is actually talking about here, and we'll see that more in just a moment. I'm simply wanting to remind all of us that the nature of God is that He's gracious. Think about this. He's invited us to come. He's invited you and me to come to His banquet table and to celebrate with Him. In fact, I think uh, I, lo I love all through the Old Testament, you see this word, come. I see, I see it in Isaiah 55. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy milk and honey with, without money or without cost. It, someone has said that come is one of God's favorite words. He's inviting us. 
He's inviting you. This is a picture that we could just pan out and say, this is the God we serve today. He's a God who invites. He's a God who is gracious. Second thing I see in this passage is not only is God gracious, but He's persistent. Say that with me. He's persistent. I want you to remember this because not only is God so gracious, but He's also persistent. And this is beautiful. Verse 4 He says, the oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready and the invitation goes out once more. Come to the wedding banquet. Come to the banquet. But notice that the people who heard the invitation simply paid no attention. One went off to his field, another to his business. We'll come back to that in a moment. But here the king continues to go out. He sends sends more people out. Go tell them, I'm ready. The banquet is ready. This mention of the king's continued pursuit is a clear reference to the persistency of our God. The great missionary C.T. Studd once said that God is like the great hound of heaven who traces us down all of life's paths. No matter what path you're on today, no matter how far you think you're from God, listen, all you need to do is turn around and see that there is a God inviting you to come. Stop, come, and be with him. And I don't know who's listening today, I don't know who's here today, but maybe that's what you need to be reminded of about God's character and nature today, that He is gracious and that He's persistent. He's not giving up on you. And by the way, there's a little side note to that. It's not because God is like pleading, like He's like saying, oh, please, please, won't you come, like like He's just desperate for us to come. He continues to send out the invitation for us to come as a reminder to us as to what our nature is, and our nature is to be rebellious. And the reason why he continues to ask and continues to invite is because we continue to run. This is our nature. Our nature before God opens our eyes and reveals to us our need for Christ, we are runners. We are rebels. We want to do our own thing. That's the nature of humanity, every one of us. So God is gracious, God's persistent, but I'll tell you another thing that this text shows us. This is the little scare, a little scarier. He's also just. Say that with me. He's just. So when people continue to say no, 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 there's a time where his patience and his graciousness ends and his judgment comes. This is the message of the Bible all the way through. There is a judgment coming. And the beautiful thing about it is, for those of us who know Christ, we know that God has brought judgment on his Son for the sin of the world. The sin of the world has been judged on Jesus Christ. Jesus took our penalty. He took the price that was meant for us. And for those that refuse to continue to rebel and say, no, I don't need it, I'm going to do it my own way, whatever, God's patience will one day run out and God's judgment will come. His wrath is being kindled and He will come and His wrath will be poured out on this earth. God is not finished in dealing with the sins of the world Although he has made provision for every person to come, anyone who would come to Jesus, he would in no ways cast aside. He has made provision for forgiveness and grace. Now, some scholars see that what's revealed here is both an indictment and a prophetic announcement concerning Israel. We'll see this a little more clearly in Matthew 24 in what is known as the Olivet Discourse. But here Jesus says some stinging things about the nation of Israel. And some believe that what Jesus is saying here came true in A.D. 70 when Rome's emperor Vespasian marched into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, burned the city, and killed over a million Jews living in and around that place. Now think about this. Jesus came to his own people and he was rejected. He was thrown out of the city and he was crucified. And this is a picture, perhaps a prophetic picture of what 
Jesus says was going to come upon the people that had the opportunity to come to him and and trust in him. Which brings us to the second movement in the sermon. I want to take just a minute and I want to do an overview of the nation of Israel and and who these folks are and, and is God finished with them and what's God doing with them. Because this is really what this parable shows us, and we'll see it bigger again in Matthew 24 and other places in, near the end of Matthew. Uh, but this parable brings us, uh, reveals a few things about God's people, Israel. And there's three things I want to show you. First of all, I want to show you that they're the privileged ones through whom God chose to bring salvation to the world. I want to point out to you that in the parable, do you notice verses 3, 4, and 8, they had already been invited This is speaking of the nation of Israel. Jesus came to them and they were already past. They had already been invited. You can trace this all the way back to Genesis 15 where Abraham, you remember God met with Abraham and he blessed Abraham and he promised Abraham through his son of promise there would come a great nation out of which the ruler of his people would come. It was a messianic prophecy all the way back to Genesis 15. And all, we don't have time to go through the history of the Old Testament, but God takes his people on this journey and they are rebels all the way along and God continues to show up and continues to discipline them and continues to bring a remnant out of them. And all of this is a picture of the fact, if you're looking for a one-word caption about who the Jews are, they are blessed people. They are a blessed people. They are blessed. I'm going to take for granted that most of us know this about Israel, that they are God's chosen people. But the reality is, they're not only blessed, but they, they in history, show that they refuse Jesus as their Messiah. And that's what we read through the Gospel of Matthew, and this is Matthew's intent, is to show that Jesus is the rightful king, he's the rightful heir of the, of the throne of David, he is the rightful king. But look at verse 3, some refused from the start. If you go down further to verse 5, some refused passively, being unconcerned or distracted with life. This is true of Israel, but it's also true of people in general. People refuse Jesus actively, sometimes passively. Notice there in verse, uh, verse 5 that they paid no attention at all. They went off, one to his field, another to his business. This is all a picture of the way Israel treated Jesus when he showed up on the scene. And it's also a picture of the way we treat Jesus too. There are a lot of folks around us that hear about Jesus but are just going their own way. Don't have time, go back to your business, go back to your life, go back to whatever, and just don't have time for Jesus. And some, look at the end of verse 5, some refuse Jesus through hostility and persecution. I mean, they killed the prophets and they killed Jesus. Now, it would be a little unfair to say uh, completely that, that, Jesus, you know, that the Jews killed Jesus because it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross too, right? So it's not the whole story when we say that the Jews put Jesus on the cross. It's, it's a true part of the story, but it's not the whole story because all of us are culpable because all of us are sinners, okay? So, so what I want to show you, if you think about Israel, you think, okay, they're a blessed people, but now I'm going to tell you that they're also a blinded people. They're blind. And they don't see who Jesus really is. I met a guy this past week who I've known for several months. I work out at the gym and I've known him and we've talked. In fact, I've invited him to stuff. He's come. And the other day I said, you know, I've never had an opportunity to just ask you what your faith background is. And he said, well, I'm Jewish. <laughs> I said, all right. I was like, whoa, good. I can't wait. We've got we've to sit down and have coffee. And I want to hear more about 
what do you believe about Jesus? And, you know, kind of a quizzical look on his face. Oh, you know, I don't know about that. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, it's fascinating to talk to Jewish people because when you look at all of the traditions and all the customs of the Jewish faith and, you know, the, the Old Testament, the, the Passover meal, all of these symbols and signs that all point just so clearly to Jesus. And yet, no, they don't see Jesus. And why is that? Because the Bible says that there is this, there is this temporary blindness that's on them. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul uses the word a hardening of heart for this period of time where the Jews have said no to Jesus. Here Jesus comes to his chosen people, but they say no, they refuse him, they reject him. Why? Because, well, they are blessed, they're God's blessed people, but they're also blind. And we don't say that in disrespect. You know, if you have Jewish background here this morning, if you're a Jew, a not a Messianic Jew, and you're sitting here today because you're curious, wow, I hope the Spirit of God is really going to just use this message to just like wake you up maybe. I don't know who's listening. I don't know who will listen to this message. God does that. I know some Messianic Jews, and they are on fire for Christ because they, their eyes are open. They see. But the nation of Israel right now is sort of dormant, right? There's, they don't believe that Jesus is the true Messiah. They're still waiting for Messiah to come. Which tells us, tells us a little bit more about them too. Um, and I see this here in the text, that they're, they're also temporarily suspended from God's blessing. Verse 8b, notice that the king says to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Uh-oh, there's a change in plan. God's going to move. This is a prophecy of God moving from the Jews temporarily to the Gentiles. The Jews were supposed to bring the blessing to the whole world. So God is going to put a little hiatus here, and the, the Gentiles are going to have the gospel brought to them. And Romans 9 through 11 says, hey, don't get too proud. If you're a Gentile, don't start thinking you're all that because you just got grafted in. They're the tree. They're the, they're the people of God. And we Gentiles, we've just been grafted in by the grace of God, and aren't we glad that God opened the door and let the Gentiles have the gospel preached to them. And, and Romans eleven twenty five 25 says that when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, God's going to go back to work on Israel. And if you want to know how he's going to go back to work on Israel, read Revelation 6 through 18. All those chapters are the way God's going to go back to work on Israel. He's going to judge them, purify them, bring a remnant out of them, and there is going to be a force leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ of evangelists that you have never seen on planet earth and they're going to be Jewish people. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many of you even know this. I, I don't know if this is like encouraging or, or like confusing. But to me, it's such a blessing to see the, the picture of God's plan being unfolded. And right here in this parable, we see all this. So when you think about Jewish, when you think about the nation of Israel, can you just, let's rehearse it. They are blessed, they are blind, and they are between. That's the word. They're between. This is a little in-between time. God's not finished with them. God's not finished with Israel. God's doing an amazing thing in what we know is the church of Jesus Christ where Jew and Gentile can function together, but God is not finished with his people. We'll see that later in the book of Matthew. All right, so now we come down to this final little point. And we'll just kind of walk through this rather quickly. This is where we kind of just get a sense now of what, is, what does all this mean for our salvation? What does it mean? Well, it means four things, really quickly. It means, number one, 
that you can respond right now to God's invitation. This parable is telling you that right now, now is the day of salvation. Notice the inclusion, verse 9. Go out, anyone, verse 9. All the people they could find, verse 10. And notice in verse 10 that the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is a picture of God's amazing inclusivity in inviting anyone and everyone to come and receive forgiveness of sins and new life. The door's open. It's amazing. The door is wide open. And I call this the glory of our salvation. Notice the little, uh, in verse 10, that the people there are both good and bad. Well, we know that the Bible talks about all of us being sinners But this parable points to the fact that there's some unexpected people in the banquet, people that you wouldn't expect. And and the the moral, you know, uh, descriptors are used, good and bad, to describe that there's, even though we're all sinners, there's some that we would say, oh, that's, that's the worst sinner there, right? And we would be surprised. Like, think of the worst person on planet Earth that you think, you know, would never, ever come to faith in Christ or didn't deserve to come to faith in Christ. This is a parable that reminds us that there's going to be people in the banquet hall, you know, that, that you didn't expect. Someone has said one of the common questions in heaven will be asked, two common questions in heaven, who are you and where's so-and-so? Those, those are going to be, <laughs> think about it, uh, two questions that, I don't know, I don't know if we're going to ask that. But the point is, God doesn't, quali- God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. So the door is wide open, and anybody that comes through, God is the one who qualifies, which brings us to the next thing that I see here, and that our response isn't dependent on our own effort, verses 11 and 12. Um, there's this odd occurrence that the king makes his way through the crowded banquet hall, and he observes a man there whose attire isn't appropriate for the occasion. He's not wearing wedding garments, Now, in ancient Israel, when you had a wedding, everybody came with wedding garments. And if you didn't have one or you couldn't afford one, the host of the wedding would provide one for you. It was sort of your ticket into the banquet. And so this is an amazing little window that we don't understand. I mean, we understand somewhat. You know, wedding parties, men in tuxes, women in formal dresses, and even that's kind of moved around and changed a lot. A lot more casualness in weddings today. But there's sort of a wedding garb that we understand. It was big time in ancient Israel. And what is this a picture of? This is a picture of how some, this one individual snuck his way in thinking he could get in on his own merit. This is a picture, I would call this the the grace of our salvation. You see, clothing is a metaphor for our identity in Scripture, all through the Scripture, think about Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell. Remember the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. We're told in the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Or Paul writes in Romans 13, 14, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, or in 2 Corinthians 5.2, we long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. My favorite one of all is Isaiah 61.10, where it says, I greatly delight in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Clothing is a metaphor of identity. 
And here Jesus points out there's a guy in the, in the wedding celebration that isn't clothed properly. And notice when the king asks him about his attire, he's speechless. You know why? He has no excuse. He has nothing to say because he's tried to do this on his own. This is the grace of our salvation. I enter by the work and labor of Christ alone or I cannot enter. This is the, the grace of our salvation. There's a third thing. I see in verse 13 that if you don't respond to God's invitation in His way, in time, you will be eternally separated from Him. Now, the image here is clear. All these metaphors clearly reveal a picture of eternal damnation in a place called hell. I mean, where else would we be talking about here? Take Him outside. Bind Him hand and foot. Put him in the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now listen, we've said this in the last three weeks. Judgment is not a theme we like to talk about. Hell is not something you hear about much these days. But I think wherever it's mentioned in Scripture, it's a point which the Holy Spirit wants us to recognize and remember that for people who think that they can just go through life and not worry and somehow figure it out in the end, or people that think, well, you know, I would rather go to hell because all my friends will be there anyway. <laughs> I've, I've met people who say that. It's ridiculous because it's, it's such a misunderstanding. There will be people who will miss heaven because of their own rebellion and hard-heartedness that they did not simply incline to the gracious and persistent invitation of God. And it will be so clear to them in that day. Why? Why? There'll be no surprise. This is, I call this the urgency of our salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 tells us. Listen, if anyone is listening today who realizes they need salvation, I urge you not to put it off for one more second. Give your life to Christ today. Now is the time. Now is the time. Last, one last little thing here. Verse 14. If you don't respond, excuse me, if you do respond to God's invitation, it's because He has chosen you. <laughs> Look at verse 14. For many are invited, but few are chosen. You know, the invitation goes out all the time. Every week here at Three Crosses and all over the world, the invitation goes out. And in storefronts and in street corners and and wherever anyone opens their Bible and reads or in a little hotel room with a Gideon Bible, they're going to see, hopefully, and read that God's invitation is available. But here's, here's the amazing thing. If you ever respond to that invitation, it's not because you're smart or you figured it out or you're better than someone else. It's simply and only because God has chosen you. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I call this the mystery of our salvation. Why, why did he call us? Why have all the people that got invited, why did he call you and me? I can't answer that question, but only to say, thank you, God, for your grace and mercy. Thank you for looking upon me. I don't know why. Why me? Why me? Why you? Why anyone? If God threw everyone in hell, it would just be his justice. The fact that he saves any is his kindness. And every week we revel in it and we worship and we sing and we say, God, like we did today, there's no one like you, Lord. 
And I think sometimes we just forget those things. We forget the glory of our salvation, the grace of our salvation, the urgency of our salvation, and the mystery of our salvation. So, that's what this parable does. It shows us first a few things about God. Let's review. He's gracious. That was weak. He's saint, number one, he's gracious. He's persistent, and he's just. A few things about Israel. Blessed, blind, between. What about salvation? It's glorious. It's grace-filled. It's urgent. And it's a mystery. Don't you love God's Word? And isn't it amazing that these are the words of Jesus who's inviting every one of us right now to come to Him. Let's pray.